Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Christopher Lockwood. My day job is editor of the Europe section, but today I'm moonlighting to bring you Tasting Menu, the juicy bits from a week of stories in print and podcasts. Well, coming up, democratizing lunar landings, the dangers of genetically modifying humans, and why it's so difficult to open a pub in Ireland. But first, our cover. Chip Wars was this week's headline. A lot of the talk around the trade war between America and China has focused on old-school goods like steel and cars. But we argued that the fundamental battlefield is over technology. The two countries are fighting it out for silicon supremacy. That is because computer chips are the foundations of the digital economy and national security. Cars have become computers on wheels. Banks are computers that move money. Armies fight with silicon as well as steel. Firms from America and its allies, such as South Korea and Taiwan, dominate the most advanced areas of the industry. China, by contrast, remains reliant on the outside world for supplies of high-end chips. So China is, of course, trying to catch up. Its ambitions have worried America and its allies for a while now. Barack Obama blocked Intel from selling some of its whizziest chips to China in 2015 and stymied the acquisition of a German chipmaker by a Chinese firm in 2016. A White House report before he left office recommended taking action against Chinese subsidies and forced technology transfer. But the current of electronic politics has changed. First, America has realised that its edge in technology gives it power over China. Second, China's incentives to become self-reliant in semiconductors have rocketed. Neither country's interests are about to change. America has legitimate concerns about the national security implications of being dependent on Chinese chips and vulnerable to Chinese hacking. China's pretensions to being a superpower will look hollow as long as America can throttle its firms at will. Our cover leader warned that America would be foolish to try to stop China's progress. China's bid to become a global semiconductor powerhouse is propitiously timed. For decades, the chip industry has been driven forward by Moore's Law, under which the capabilities of a chip of a given size double every two years. But Moore's Law is reaching its physical limits. As everyone jumps to new technologies, from quantum computing to specialised AI chips, China has a rare chance to catch up. When the chips are down, the question is to what lengths America should go to try to stay ahead. Pick up this week's issue of The Economist to find out. It's on all good newsstands and online. And if you go to economist.com slash radio offer, you can read your first 12 issues for just $12 or £12. China appeared to leap ahead in quite a different field last week. A Chinese scientist, He Jiankui, 
claimed to have created the first genetically modified human babies, twin girls, Lulu and Nana, born a few weeks ago and apparently resistant to the HIV virus. The reaction from his fellow scientists, however, was not of wonder, but horror, as our healthcare correspondent Natasha Loder explained to Ken Kuke on Babbage, our science and technology podcast. You know, you've got to ask yourself, well, why isn't that gene more prevalent in human societies already? And it may be that having that gene confers some kind of risk. This is so, so unexpected that someone would do this that we haven't even decided how to do it correctly. So there's no way Mr. He could have done this correctly that because we haven't set up the systems to do that. So he went rogue. Yeah, he went rogue. Okay, so then why are you defending the rights of the family against the scientific community at the outset of our conversation not to be able to inspect the work? Because they're human beings. And even though Mr. He may not have respected their human rights as he should have done, the rest of the world has to do. But having set the precedent, can the technology be reeled back in? Go deeper into the debate by listening to Babbage every Wednesday from Economist Radio on your podcast app. Another giant leap for mankind was the subject of the latest in our special series, The World Ahead. It's 50 years since man first walked on the moon, and in that time only 12 white American men have done so. We asked Oliver Morton whether 2019 might be the year in which we start to see others getting a chance. Next year, we'll see launches and, we hope, landings by Israel and by India. India's smacked the moon around a bit with a probe before, but not landed on it softly. And Israel's never gone beyond Earth orbit before. So that's kind of exciting. And then over the years that follow, we expect to see lots of smaller robot craft land on the moon until eventually some humans do. There are a number of American companies, both small and large, that are interested in this and who will basically be taking payloads to the moon for other people as a sort of like a taxi trucking service. NASA now pays Elon Musk or someone else to launch supplies to the space station. They don't launch them themselves. And the moon's going to run in a similar sort of way. There will be people who will truck stuff up, companies like Astrobotics or Moon Express. Express delivery to the moon. Get more audio snapshots of the future on The World Ahead from Economist Radio. We discuss the ending of an era of American hegemony back on Earth, too, in the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our chat show. Our guest was retired General Stanley McChrystal, former commander of all NATO forces in Afghanistan. We asked him whether America can still police the world. We had a period when the United States was disproportionately powerful and called a hyperpower at one point. And so the idea of nation-on-nation warfare was impossible because nobody could possibly stand up to the United States technologically or or girth-wise. I think that's not true anymore. I think there are states that have determined that in some fashion they can potentially contest us. But I also think smaller actors, non-state actors, even terrorist groups are leveraging technology now that has disproportionate ability to threaten. And so I think what we're now going to see is both. We're going to see the whole range of threats. Although violence is statistically down in the world, I think the potential for violence is still relatively high. General Stanley McChrystal there. And you can listen to the rest of that discussion on The Economist Asks, from his regrets over the invasion of Iraq to the prospect of ground war in Europe. The Economist Asks is published every Thursday. Back to this week's paper now, 
and the Middle East and Africa section, where Israel is on the brink of a miracle. The water level of the Sea of Galilee, on which Jesus supposedly walked, is a national obsession in Israel. Newspapers report its rise and fall next to the weather forecast. Lately, the sea, which is actually a freshwater lake, has been falling. It is now a quarter empty. Small islands have emerged above its shrinking surface. If Jesus were to return today, he'd have a much easier time. So the Israeli government has come up with a novel solution to top it up again. A billion shekel, that's $270 million plan, to pump desalinated seawater, mostly from the Mediterranean, into the Sea of Galilee. Work on a new pipeline began last month. A freshwater lake has never been replenished in this way, but the scientists monitoring the plan believe it will work similarly to rainfall and will not harm the lake's unique ecosystem. Jesus' impersonators should take advantage while they still can. This week's finance section reported from Ireland. No hydration problem there, whether you're after water or something stronger. But if you're the enterprising sort and looking to open your own pub, our correspondent had bad news. It's one in, one out. Aspiring landlords must buy licences from those willing to surrender theirs. Moreover, buyers must prove local need by pointing to a growing population or the closure of nearby pubs. Lorraine Compton, a lawyer in Dublin, estimates that the cost of a licence in the Republic is €53,000. That's $60,000. The standard licence fee in England and Wales is a few hundred pounds. Well, this draconian system dates back to far tougher times. In fact, to the wake of the Irish potato famine in the mid-19th century. In 1845, the first year of the blight, there were 15,000 pubs for 8.3 million people. By 1891, just 4.7 million people remained, and the number of pubs had grown to 17,000. The Royal Commission on Liquor Licensing Laws reported in 1897 that the number of pubs was out of proportion to the necessities of the inhabitants. Times have happily changed much since then, but there's no prospect of a merrier future for the aspiring publican. Lawmakers south of the border are debating tightening booze laws. It may not be long before the number of Irish pubs outside Ireland, like the number of people claiming Irish ancestry, exceeds those on the Emerald Isle. And I want to give the last word this week to Chagwan, whose column gave us a tour around an astonishing memorial to China's 20th century. In a country where historical studies are a tool of the Communist Party's control, not an invitation to debate, the Jiangchuan museums take another path. Quietly and sympathetically, without bossy sloganeering, they let visitors explore and share memories of the recent past, as jogged by a unique collection of some eight million artefacts. Well, this is all the work, essentially, of one man. Fan Jianchuan, a government official turned property tycoon. He hosts Chaguan for a fiery Sichuanese lunch in offices above an old munitions factory built into a cliff. Restless and plain-speaking, he has the shaved head of a monk and the torso of a wrestler, squeezed into a green T-shirt with a motto that pays homage to his army years on the border with Russia. He talks of patriotism, calligraphy and the commercial headaches of running museums. Alongside nostalgia, the exhibits carefully evoke shared hardships. 
One museum in Anren is devoted to the nearly 18 million urban youngsters who were banished to the countryside for years of ploughing, hauling manure and digging ditches instead of being educated. A visitor explains why he brought his son and four other teenagers. It is necessary for them to know this. Their lives at home are too easy, he murmurs. But although Mr Fun is on a mission to help his country to remember, he is determined that his museums reserve judgment for now. He has kept tons of historical papers in storage. If someone was raped or purged and never wants to speak of it, what right does he have to bring that up, he asks. Why can't China just tell its history straight? Because there's no sure way of telling it straight, he says with emphasis. Everyone was involved. Well, if it's stories told straight that you're after, go to economist.com or Economist Radio on your podcast app for much more where these came from. For now, that's the end of Tasting Menu. But while you're with us, please do take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Christopher Lockwood, and in London, this is The Economist. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big